into the moth light. This time on Into the Moth Light, we are talking to Rotterdam-based artist Esther Orlis, recorded when she was in Scotland for the Alchemy Film and Moving Image Festival. Esther works with motion picture film formats Super 8, 16mm and 35mm film, resulting in films, performances and installations. Her work always arises from DIY methods. Her work has been exhibited and screened at film festivals worldwide, among others 25 Frames Per Second Festival, Ann Arbor Film Festival, Sonic Arts and the International Film Festival Rotterdam. She's written extensively about her DIY approach to photochemical film practice, including in the magazine Re-Engineering the Moving Image, the artist-run film lab maker's manual. This is packed with various recipes and processes, including methods to produce handmade emulsion. Experiments with this homebrew emulsion was one of the themes of Esther's talk at the Filmmaker Symposium at Alchemy this year, where she showed various test shots and talked in detail about the processes involved. We'll get to that later, and we'll share images and links on our website at intothemothlight.com. But to start with, I asked Esther about her initial interest in the moving image and experimental film. Into the Mothlight. Actually, I, th- I think when I was rather young already, at the Art Academy I was trained in uh, photography, but I always had a kind of interest in, in the moving image and then the analogue moving image and the surrealistic uh, moving image, like Achin Andalou and um, La Belle La Bette. In that time, it was already pronounced the analog uh, medium as that, both in photography as in film. I always thought that it would be a missed chance if on the art school you, you say that a medium is no longer interesting to work with as an artist. So it was a kind of um, act of resistance against then how the art school showed us and, and it was then analog video mm-hmm. I don't know if it's even analog but at, at least it, it was the the umetic and you had these very special effects with strange things which I always considered not not really an, an act of art but more an act of industry mm-hmm. and also this this um, I call this embracement of, of new technology and innovation. I always think that in the beginning it's, it's much more looking about what does this technology and what could we do with it than a real act of, of art. So it already started there and beforehand I, I really liked more surrealistic um, and films more made by artists than than the industry films. Attending your programme at the Alchemy Film Festival this week, um, there's a real love of colour and texture in your work, and not, not just present in the, the images that we can see projected 
patterns that come as a result of the kind of chemical experimentation. So when, when did that level of experimentation start with you? Actually, as soon as I went from Super 8 to 16, and I went from Super 8 to 16 due to the, the processes, um, on, on the art school I already did uh, silkscreen printing. Um, so it, it was a rather logic step. In 16 you have so many uh, other steps. It's not just camera, but you, you have to print it to... Well, let's say if in, in the standard official way you make a camera negative, you print it to a rush print, you edit the rush print, it goes back to the lab, and then a negative cutter edits your negative, and then you also work on the sound separately, and then there's a sound negative made, and then in the final print you do some grading. So all these steps um, are also available in the 16 part not in the Super 8 part. And um, due to my silkscreen experience, I really th thought that that actually these this printing techniques are similar, mm -hmm. although they are with film. And um, I'm totally... It's not an obsession, but I'm, I think analog film or photochemical film has so much logic. And, and I really are still f totally fascinated by the fact that it's a medium which can really capture light. So there is something kind of chemistry thing happening that as soon there's light shining on, on this surface, there is a chemical reaction starting which starts a kind of... I, oh, I, you know, this one step follows the other step and, and all these things are so fascinating, but logic. It was great to hear you talk in a symposium. By the time we see your work projected, and in particular the, the work that was shot on Filmstop, where you had actually um, created your own emulsion, which I thought was a, a, amazing to, to kind of go through that process, and for you to share the results of the experimentation before you thought, right, this is, this is right. So tell me about why you felt the need to, to start to experiment with um, producing your own sort of silver gelatin emulsion and, and, and the process of trying out the, the various techniques to, to, to build the emulsion onto the plastic and then to actually film and, and process it and use it. it. It was not only a kind of act of resistance because during my practice and using analogue film, I, throughout the years I, I had to listen to all this like it's an... Uh, obsolete medium the technology is is useless and there is no innovation possible in this medium and all these things and i i always thought like like how come they are so fierce on on this uh, proclaiming this medium dead while well when photo photography started they also said the same about paintings and, and painting is still vivid and alive and, and uh, seen as totally contemporary. And I, I think it should be totally similar to uh, a photochemical film or analog film, or whatever you call it. So for me, it was also a kind of thing like, okay, we the, the film was always really in the hands of industry. It is still because you need a certain stock mm -hmm. made by mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, but 
what happens if you make it yourself and you you follow the steps of the pioneers and the, actually the following the steps of the pioneers is quite easy because then it was a new medium and and they lo- put a lot of effort in sharing sharing their uh, findings so they could there could be made new big, bigger steps and new steps um, it was almost a kind of same open access and open source medium mm-hmm. then to to um, share all all the experiments it was and if you lead, read these booklets and and findings and writings about in that time and I, I talking about 1880s till 19 let's say 19 at three, 1903, it already started to, to, to be being commercialized. So then it started to, to get more secrets. Mm-hmm. Beforehand, these these totally funny and lively technical uh, writings about experiments happen in bathrooms and that you don't have to worry about the porcelain because it doesn't make stains. It's easy to wash off and. Mm-hmm. and and others were um, writing about that, that uh, it was so uh, unpredictable what would happen that if you want to put money is in it and, and earn a living out of it, it would be more uh, stable to just do gambling and things like that. Really funny writings. <laughs> and, and really enjoyable, really mm-hmm. like a kind of happiness which which actually changed after it got more industrial produced for both consumers as as a more industry thing so i thought what happens if i just go back to the, to that state of a kind of happiness and and follow these steps and then in that time it was really as to to copy nature mm-hmm. they were really eager to find ways to to how to copy nature but for me as an artist it's i don't need to i don't want to copy nature i want to do something different i want to 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 give a kind of reflection of how i want to show the world so i thought there are maybe many steps made which went to this perfect picture perfect which are not interesting for me so kind of missing links so there were uh, really beautiful uh, tryouts in how to get color, which were then only steps they could do in black and white film. So color separations and things like that. Like like the autochrome, um, for me one of the most beautiful inventions, and it's actually invented and commercialized by the uh, Brothers Lumière, the pioneers of uh, film as well. And they used uh, colored potato starch to give a layer in on top of a black and white film, and you had to look through it for pictures. But for me, uh, analog pic- uh, photography and film are are in in chemistry and in process uh, rather similar. And so they made pictures to this colored potato starch, and you had to watch them like a slide through this colored potato starch. But at that time, the, the techniques of making black and white emulsion was limited in, in how to give them se- to make them sensitive for the colors we see. So they were actually more colorblind emulsions. So they could see blue, they could see green, but red was a problem. 
and so they were off nature and this off nature fascinated me the most so for me this doing my own emulsion was really to create something which was not like used how how it is used in the industry I, it was much more a way of finding something which was not not standard not cannot be done or it's really that you have a kind of total independence of everything and I also wanted to to use it as a kind of action against this as a rebellious action or a resistant action against this always proclaimed death of, of cinema because um, I'm not from the nostalgic ones like we should save uh, cinema because it's our heritage I, I do I do believe in this we mm-hmm. should save cinema but I'm, I'm it's more rebellious or a resistant action against this proclamation of saying a medium is dead a medium is only dead when it's not used and um, I think there is a huge interest in, especially in, in this form of photochemistry because uh, it's so totally different from what is done nowadays and if I teach students for them it's the new medium I think in the symposium as well you, you did talk about home processing and and kind of caffeinol processing and I know within um, people that are working in, in photochemical film there is quite a community of people that, that, that share recipes for caffeinol processing and um, so do you find there's there's a community for people that are going that bit further like yourself and, and, and making your own emulsion yeah absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely actually it's even in this magazine I just gave you it's it's a small community but worldwide we ha- there are around 10 maybe more um, artists really working on on making their own emulsion for their own practice to to that it fits in how they want to work with film, and we had we had some some seminars. I don't know how to call them uh, differently, but then um, that we stayed together for more than a week, mm-hmm. and then in the dark room, making a lot of accidents happening, and out of these accidents have findings. So we did we did kind of try to reproduce uh, this autochrome on film. Uh, it looked beautiful, but it was just colored starch we, we were looking at and but just watching this colored uh, potato starch on film was already a kind of achievement which made us very happy and actually um, one of my later films I showed deletion is is a kind of reaction of these findings this this scattered image this splash and splatter of colors so yeah, and we also have a kind of, thanks to modern media and the world wide web, we easily can can communicate in, I did this. And I think this community of open access and sharing is, um, for me, similar to, to the pioneers. And um, because there is, actually, I think because there is no economical um, benefit in a lot of experimental uh, film and other arts, um, uh, people are really keen to share their knowledge because that's part of their practice, their artistic practice to share. As long as there's not a kind of capitalist thing structure coming in.
Let's talk about accidents and and happenstance in your work. I love that idea of an accident happening in, in your process, which leads to another, and uh, eventually you get to a point where something starts to emerge that you have a bit of control of. And um, it was really great to see your work, um, Conrad and Kerfurst, which I think the accident there was the, the tiny roll of film that came with a projector is that that right which then sparked an idea and a whole other process could you say could you say a little bit about that um i got this really this piece of found footage which of course have a really uh, strange atmosphere around it because it was the olympiada from the 1936 in berlin and it's it it was when I found out it was a piece of Leni Riefenstahl stuff, it almost felt like I was burning my hands. Like, okay, I, you, you're not allowed to, to 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 do anything with this. But I, I still, of course, watched it, <laughs> and and I, um, I I saw all these falling horses. It, it was a piece, and it, it it's not even in the Olympiad. It's just a newsreel because at that time there was no television, so they sent this propaganda or beautifully filmed propaganda as a, more as a kind of news mm-hmm. for and and then at that time you saw the news in a, in a cinema, in uh, before the film started you saw the news of the world, black and white always. And this one particular one doesn't, didn't even have sound, and it was specially made for the Dutch uh, cinemas. So it, um, it had a, a Dutch uh, subtitle in Olympiada Nieuwsreel or something like that. I don't know. It was totally worn out, but the only thing I could see that it went from one sport and really briefly, like a split second, and then a, a, a full almost a minute sequence of falling horses and and then it was broken again and that was basically it so i thought like but this is not in the in the film in the original film so what is this so i i I looked through through the history what happens here and then i i got in this this strange story i was scared of I actually um, do like the, his- the, the, the stories of history and how we used animals throughout throughout our history and 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 how, how especially in the first world war, if you consider how many horses and people died, that it, it's it's out of my imagination how many these are. And also, you know, how we, how we use, for me, is how we use animals is similar to how we use technology and, and machinery and stuff. But anyway, I stumbled in this story, which I was a little scared of because it's, uh, yeah. Um, so I wanted to show it from a totally different angle. So from and from the point of view from a horse that 
is trying to get away. And I also thought it would be nice if I could make a kind of um, film that you actually don't see anything. And if you see anything, it's just more in what you want to see or more in, in what you hope to see. And I only give a kind of... That was the idea when I started doing this emulsion, how to use this emulsion in this story, mm -hmm. that I thought that the emulsion would be totally fragile and peel off. And by peeling off and you would print it, it would be totally kind of black film and now and then you will see something. For this reason, I, I wanted to use this fra uh, fragile handmade emulsion in the story, which I thought was also a fragile story um, in in sense of where it is in history, but also in the way how how Konrad was was trying was pushed by the Germans to become a hero. And actually, I found out that that his image of him with his broken collarbone and his arm in the swing was was spread. They tried to s spread it worldwide on cigar bands and, and postcards and it's a totally forgotten history. So I wanted to use my, my fragile stuff as a total f to show that it's a total forgotten history. And it's, it's totally tinted in blue, according to the pioneers, because it's always about color. And I wanted to, to have a look that it comes out of this multi-organic, uh, almost life fleshy emulsion, which looks like it's boiling. And then out of this blue, you see a split second of a horse swimming mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it, it was it was beautiful to experience that that work projected people can see it online but there's no substitution no, for, no, for, for seeing it in a and cinema I have to admit that the original which is the real handmade emulsion mm -hmm. it's really if you feel it's really bubbly and and mm -hmm. it's it's rather strong as, as soon dry so you can really just touch it with your hands which I actually like to do to make a copy out of that was, was rather hard, uh, di difficult because normally you make a contact copy, and which means you sandwich uh, your your original together with a new new raw stock unexposed, and you press them together, mm -hmm. and then they're passing a light, and that's your copy, your yeah. contact copy. And and my bubbly films didn't really want to make contact <laughs> with the new stuff, so um, I only showed the original ones. It doesn't have sound, of course. But I, I showed it because it is even uh, a, a more intense um, thing because you really see almost a three-dimensional three of the, the real film. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light podcast. Let's talk about sound then. Um, because I, I know that you, you like to collaborate on, on sounds and I, I'm also gaining quite a, a fascination with the optical sound that, that, yes. that's used in, in the analogue process, which um, there's so many variables. So tell me a little bit about your approach to collaborating with sound and, and using the sound that just, again, accidentally uh, appears on the, on the roll of film. I, I have to admit, I, I always feel quite insecure about sound because I, I feel myself as a visual artist and not a sound artist but I have a very strong idea often about uh, what, what sound should do and I'm also 
really fascinated by the fact how, how optical sound works in, in film because it's it's almost a medium on its own like in 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 1920s the russian made even synthesizers with this type of sound and if you draw on on the sound parts you you actually can can draw sound like Daphne Oram did and it's 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 a beautiful thing and it's totally misjudged as as in quality not good because it has a very strong own quality mm-hmm. And um, I do like to work with, with artists who are less insecure about sound than me. And um, I also like the idea that, that whatever you put there uh, will, will give you sound. So in Ellie, I used, I used the, the dustiness of how I work um, as the soundtrack because it, the sound of dust on film is really similar if you if you combine that with a, um, an image of the sea it it's really like if you hear the sea and and uh, every time i show it everyone really thinks they're listening to the sea but they don't and so that's that's the little thingies what i always like and in um, in deep red originally it should have sounds but again it's the sound of the idea was that it would be a blank soundtrack Mm -hmm. and every time I would show it it would get more sounds only in specific work I really want to work with a uh, sound artist. Like um, I consider Deletion as my only film working with a, a sound artist. And um, in all the other films, I asked for help to help me do what I wanted. Um, for Deletion, I worked with uh, Yi Yong Kang, uh, my my favorite uh, electronic uh, composer. She's from Den Haag. She's from South Korea, but she's living uh, nearby. And I worked with her once for during a performance, and it, it went by accident. One of our members of our Artist One Lab in Rotterdam uh, was working with her, and um, for a performance we were um, looking for a sound musician, and she said, oh, why not ask her? As soon as I worked with her, I was a huge fan. And I'm still a huge fan, so I really thought like if anyone can can work with me on sound, it's her. Yeah. Uh-huh. Deletion officially should be um, it's my 35 uh, film, which actually has surround sound. I don't mind if it's shown on mono because I I told her it will also be shown on 16 uh-huh. mono sound, so how to adapt to that and so we had some conversations if if you know if you make a piece for a surround sound and and you're going to also show it as mono sound what will happen mm-hmm. and and actually i think she liked the idea that this would happen that there's something happening she has not much control on and especially uh, 16 mil sound, um, every projector can have slightly different sound because it's uh, sound gained by a little light. Mm-hmm. And if this light is older than, than another projector, the sound already changes. 
tell me about the film Worker Place in, in Rotterdam. What led you to form that workspace and, and how has that informed and enabled your work over the years? And we, we talked about a kind of global community of people that are interested mm-hmm. in handmade emulsion, but it's also nice to have a community of people um, within a certain city or space. So t- you know, tell me a bit about the kind of lead up to that and how it's helped you. I, I, I think uh, forming a community or an artist run lab is a community, of course. Um, in the practice of do-it-yourself experimental film, really essential because as a do-it-yourselfer, it basically means you are, if you're working on a film, you're in, in on your own, like the pioneers, you're uh, the cameraman, the director, the, the technician, the whatever, everything. So you're totally isolated from from anything, and then you also I'm I'm working with color, so I really work sometimes a whole week in total darkness. Mm-hmm. So you almost sometimes lose the the connection with reality, <laughs> and and then there is a very essential part that that this artist run lab then and the other members can give you a kind of. Um, feedback into reality we trained ourselves to give comments and and we are also doing now we're trying to to organize projects that we show our steps um um, open for public but basically also to to get feedback or just to show what you're we're doing in the dark and and that other um, members can give comments on that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. ask questions like why are these steps or that you can as as the one showing what you're doing can ask questions to the audience and other members like like i'm 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 stuck i'm stuck i don't i don't know what to do from from here on and then then you show it it's kind of sharing in your practice but not only that, that's the community part, which I, I think is very essential. It's also that we collected a lot of uh, equipment, and, and often this equipment came from the industry. These, these are machines which once costed like half a million dollars, often dollars, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and were not, not accessible for do-it-yourself artists. And um, these machines are totally abundant. It's... it's really scrap metal and only because they're no they're useless in 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 to earn money with nowadays yeah, uh-huh. it's not they're useless as a tool they're just useless in a commercial a capitalist way and but these machines are often uh, built to last for for almost eternity like the machine we just got is from the 60s so it's it's more than yeah, it's 50-something years old. And if you see this condition, it, it looks like a train locomotive or a train thing. It's, it's really heavy. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it, you go like, yeah, but in 100 years it will be still working. Mm-hmm. So we collected a lot of these machines which are totally fine and, and usable, but useless in, in earning money with commercially exploitation. They're useless. But in artistic ways, they're absolutely fine because there are so many fascinating steps in, in, in analog filmmaking, like special effects, how it was done. Actually, this machine comes from London and it was used for um, a lot of the um, um, analog uh, special effects of English well-known filmmakers. 
I think it worked on uh, Baron von Münchhausen and uh, Brazil and other films. But now we can touch these machines ourselves. I love that idea that, it, that it's come from the, the, the mainstream film industry uh, and then made its way to Rotterdam and been used for, for delicious and, and wildly interesting experimental film. Um, Esther, we're, we're both attending a screening uh, this morning. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Into the moth light. To end this episode, I'm going to read Esther's introduction from a piece called Re-Engineering the Industry from the Artist-Run Film Lab Maker's Manual, which I think sums up a lot of what we talked about in the interview. In the article, she writes, We can be certain that, in the near future, artist-run film labs will represent the leading standard in contemporary analogue filmmaking. During the last few decades, these labs have acquired professional but commercially discarded equipment from all over the globe. Now that we have access to the tools, we can move forward outside of the industry. These labs provide a growing awareness of the importance of open culture-based knowledge sharing. The analogue film medium, freed from its economic profit-based competition, may herald a new era. Driven by artistic freedom, it opens up a huge amount of potential, with room for total labour-intensive but new skilled and innovative outcomes. Now it's up to us, self-skilled film artists, to take up the challenge, to rid the medium of nostalgic doom and create new opportunities for the continued use and further development of the machinery and technology of analogue film. Let's dive deeply into what is already possible and combine that with what has not been done before. And again, we'll share links and images on our website at intothemothlight.com. Until next time, goodbye. Into the Mothlight.